following message is presented by First Baptist Church of Morgan City, Louisiana. For more information, go to the website www.fbcmc.org. Now the message. If you have your Bibles tonight, we'll be in the book of Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. The title of tonight's message is The Curse. And if you got your pencils ready, I'll just go ahead and give you the answers and you can fill in all the blanks and then start taking notes after that. We're going to be looking at the curse. We're going to be looking at the cure. We're going to be looking at the covenant. And we're going to be looking at the commitment. Those are the four points that this passage we're going to break down into. We'll unpack it all here in just a moment. But if you ever spend any time watching television or listening to the radio, uh, you know that every now and then you'll run across a commercial, uh, maybe for a car dealership, uh, maybe some legal advertisement, maybe some medication that they're trying to promote. Uh, you'll know that they, they make it look real good. They make it look beneficial. They want to uh, just uh, pump it up and, and capture your attention with everything that's going on within the commercial. And then at the end, the very end, what do they do? Here come the side effects. All that gibberish that you can't understand. Why? Because they don't want you to know what the side effects are if it's a medication because you'll never purchase and take the thing. I mean, they want to put all the legal requirements at the end and they want to put it in a speed at which you probably can't understand. Obviously, I'm not qualified to do something like that. <laughs> Most of you know that I don't talk fast. I know a lot of other people around here that are like that as well. I still have people around here that, that, that they'll hear me talking. They'll say, you're not from around here, are you? <laughs> but those disclaimers at the end of a commercial are a legal requirement. Uh, they are preventing liability. Uh, they are protecting rights. They are separating the ad from the platform. Uh, just like all other disclaimers do, it protects, number one, it protects the advertiser. It also protects the customer, the consumer, and it also protects the radio station or the TV station from any legal allegations, being sued uh, for false advertisement, for false information, what have you. But there is requirements on how fast they can do those commercials. And it's not required in all states. Only some states will require it from what I can see. And so if they go too fast, there are... Um, some uh, requirements against that that prevent that. Uh, sometimes with an audio ad, the disclaimer can be tricky. Uh, in, in print, if you've ever uh, agreed to something on the Internet, maybe an Apple upgrade or something like that, you have this little checkbox down at the bottom, and they put all this stuff in fine print that's about as long as your arm that you can hardly read and what do you do? Most of us don't read that stuff. We just click that agree and go on. I mean, we've got to have it. We're going to take it no matter what. Uh, whatever happens, happens. Um, all of those things, uh, they're, they're kind of frustrating. Uh, it leads us to believe that we are being tricked or duped into something. Uh, maybe they are trying to camouflage or to hide something, or maybe they're trying to add something on at the end that will benefit themselves, but maybe possibly and potentially harm you as well. That is kind of similar to what the Apostle Paul is dealing with 
here in the book of Galatians, as he's dealing with these Judaizers in these young churches in the area of Galatia. They are saying, yes, salvation is good, but you have to add this onto it as well. It's like this disclaimer that they put on the end of something that you don't understand. There's no way you could possibly meet all the requirements for it. And so as you read through the book of Galatians, as you read through any of the Apostle Paul's letters, and just like in the book of Romans chapter 5 that we looked at this morning, you'll see a lot of that uh, in tonight's message as well. The Apostle Paul, there's nobody else probably that the Lord could have selected to do what Paul was doing that would understand all of the Jewish requirements and laws and legalities, the loopholes that they had in them. So who better to defend the faith against Judaizers than somebody that knew the law backward? Paul was a professional in the law. He was a Jewish scholar. He was well-educated. He was well-learned from his youth on up. He was taught the legal requirements of Judaism. So who better to defend against something like that than the Apostle Paul himself? So the Apostle Paul has dealt with several different issues that the Judaizers had brought in. The first one that we looked at in the book of Galatians was the issue of circumcision. The Judaizers were saying that these new converts... These Gentile converts must be circumcised in order for them to gain all the benefits, the true benefits of God's salvation. And the Apostle Paul says that is just ridiculous. That is not what the gospel is for. Jesus died for one. He died for all. And he has redeemed all of mankind that will come to him by faith. So as you open up your Bibles in Galatians chapter 3, we're going to begin in chapter uh, verse 10, and we're going to read through verse 18, and then we'll unpack it, and we'll talk about those four points that I mentioned just a moment ago. Being in verse 10, the apostle Paul says this. He actually says that the law brings a curse. He says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law. To do them. Now, the Apostle Paul, knowing the Old Testament well, he's using the book of Deuteronomy. He's using the book of Genesis. He's using the book of Leviticus. He's using all of the things, the five books that Moses wrote in the Pentateuch. All of the things concerning the Mosaic law, he is referring to them and using those to defend his case here. It says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But, that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. So if you go back up to chapter 2, verse 21, this is a verse that we're going to refer to time and time again as we go through this study. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. He's reflecting back upon that. He says that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God. He said, and that is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Quoting a passage out of the book of Habakkuk. Verse 12, he says, yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. We're getting into the cure here. Having become a curse for us, For it is written, cursed is everyone 
who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Amen and amen to that. Verse 15, brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say into seeds as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ, he explains it plain and clear there. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, he's talking about the time from Abraham to the time Moses introduced the law to the children of Israel, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So let's unpack this a little bit. Let's look at the curse that he's talking about here. If you remember from last week, the Apostle Paul commented that it was almost as if they were under a spell. Uh, when he opened up this chapter, of course, it was not written as chapter. It was written as one continuous letter. But as we look at it in chapters, uh, chapter 3, he wanted to know, Who has bewitched you that you should obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you? He's saying that you have almost, you're acting almost like someone has cast a spell upon you. You're acting in a way that is foreign to the gospel. You say that you're saved, but you have drifted away because of these false teachers and the Judaizers so fast, almost as if they've cast a spell upon you. And now you are under this curse. Here he goes a little deeper in his warning of the dangers of the Judaizers. He says that not only uh, they act as if they were under a spell, but if they follow the works of the law as Judaizers suggested, then they will be under a curse instead of under a blessing. He says, as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. He makes it plain and clear that if you fall for this mess, that the Judaizers is bringing to you, if you fall for their false teaching, you're going to be under a curse instead of under a blessing. He's saying the law brings a curse, but faith in Jesus Christ is what brings your blessing of salvation. His first reference of a curse goes all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 27 where Moses pronounces the curse from Mount Ebal. Deuteronomy 27, 28, and 29 lay all of these out. Uh, this study that we're going through on Wednesday night about the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is giving them warnings before they go into the promised land because Moses is not going to be able to go with them. But he lays out an entire chapter, chapter 28. He says, these are going to be the blessings that will come your way if you disobey and if you don't follow the Lord. But if you do follow, he gives in another entire chapter to the blessings that they will be under by obediently following the Lord. But in this, he says, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. It's a reference specifically to Deuteronomy 27 verse 26. Paul is simply stating that if you live by the law and consider your justification by your works, 
If you fail in any one of those laws, you're doomed. They that live by the sword will also die by the sword, is how Jesus put it. Verse 11 here in Galatians chapter 3, he says, as many as are of, in other words, he's saying those who depend on it to make them right, it is evident that they are not justified in the sight of God. In other words, it is made plain because the scripture in turn states in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 that the just shall live by faith. He's drawing a line here. He's saying, what are you going to live by? Are you going to live by the curse of the law? Or are you going to live by the promise that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ? He's making them think. He's making them decide. And as we go through the book of Galatians, like I've said before, this is to prepare you and your apologetics and your witness, dealing with other denominations or religions that promote strict adherence to laws, ordinances, rules, regulations, for them to draw closer to their deity. How do you defend against something like that? He said, look, it's either faith in Jesus Christ or nothing at all. If you depend on your own self to gain eternal life, you're going to fail. Verse 12, he clearly says that the law is not of faith. And here's what the law did. Like I said, God made this covenant to Abraham, uh, to Abraham and then 430 years later, the law was introduced. What happened in that time span? Abraham and his people, all of his descendants, his offspring, his seed, were living under a promise, this covenant that God gave to Abraham. I'm going to make you a large nation. You're going to have many descendants, as many as the stars in the sky are in multitude and the sands by the seashore innumerable. But here's what happened to that promise. The law came along and basically covered it up. And in man's eyes, what they could see visibly, the stone commandments, the Ten Commandments, the written law, trumped out the promise that God gave to Abraham. They were living by sight and not by faith, whereas the Bible says we are to live by faith and not by sight. Paul is very, very emphatic in his statement here that no one is justified by the law. So how are we justified? By whom are we justified? So it's easy for us to proclaim that here in the 21st century. It's easy for us to say that I am justified only by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But put yourself in the shoes of a first century church. This gospel is still new. It's fresh. They're still learning it. They're learning how to walk by faith instead of walking by sight. They're learning how to walk being justified by grace instead of justified and redeemed by the law. All of this is still new to them. So put yourself in their shoes for just a moment. It's easy for us to sit back and say, I just don't see how they were so easily tricked and persuaded by this false teaching. Here we are 2,000 years later. We have the full counsel of God in which we can study. It's easy for us to be comfortable in our faith and our belief because of what we see in the scriptures. We have the writings of Paul. 
We see his defense here in the book of Galatians, but just put yourself in the shoes of a new first century church for just a moment. You're confused. You're not well grounded in your doctrine yet. You're still being taught by someone like the apostle Paul. And then along comes someone else saying, oh yeah, that this is something else that you need to add to it. So, oh, okay, let, let's do that then. It would be easy for us to be confused and tricked by those false teachers if we were in that situation. So considering that and considering where we are at right now, how important is it now to know your scriptures? How important would it have been back then to know the scriptures? And some of these are Gentile believers who didn't have the full counsel of God. They didn't have the Old Testament to go by. They were solely dependent on what they were being taught. How important is it now to know your scriptures so that you are not persuaded by a false teacher? When those disclaimers at the end come along and they go, you say, well, hold on just a minute. I'm living by faith. I'm not living by your disclaimer and your law and your regulation. That's not what I'm justified by. How important is it now here in the 21st century to be properly grounded in doctrinal beliefs? What does the scripture say about baptism? What does the scripture say about the Lord's Supper? How do I know if someone is trying to tack on a disclaimer at the end that's not biblically sound? Now, how crucial is proper discipling as well? If you want new believers to be grounded in those truths as well, what are we doing to teach them those important doctrines of the faith so that they're not duped, they're not tricked, and they're not persuaded by false teachers? Paul is summarizing it here by saying that there are two methods of justification that a person will live by. He's saying either you're living by man's standards of justification, which is good works, or you're living by God's standards of justification, which is grace and only grace. He's saying, are you under the curse or are you under the promise? If you're under the curse, now here comes the cure for it. Picking up in verse 13, he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. So the purpose of the law was to reveal sin. It had no power at all to redeem sinners. I'm going to say that again here in just a moment. Christ has redeemed. In other words, he has rescued us through his atoning death. The word redeemed means to buy back or to ransom. He purchased us through his death on the cross to save us from the restrictions of the law. Christ has redeemed us. He's rescued us. He's purchased us and he's bought us from the curse of the law. This is like if you watch those little cartoons as a kid. Maybe you still watch them today. I don't know. Some movies have been like that. 
You've got this this young lady, maybe she's a prince, maybe she's someone who's looking for her uh, long-lost love, and, and all of a sudden somebody gives her like a, a poison apple or puts her under a little spell, and the only way for her to be saved is what? A kiss by her prince charming. That's the only way to break the spell. Basically, that's what happened to the Jews and the Gentiles with the law. They were under the curse of the law. And then Jesus Christ came along and he paid their sin debt and redeemed them and set them free from the curse that they were under. This is the only cure. Jesus Christ had to become a curse to save us from the curse. Because here's what he says. He says, uh, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He says, it is written in the book of Deuteronomy that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Paul is once again going back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verse 23, where we first see our scriptural reference to crucifixion as a means of capital punishment. You see, the Romans did not invent crucifixion. They just perfected it. If you remember, they were actually impaling people on poles back in the book of Esther. And if you read the book of Jonah, the Ninevites, they were professionals at executing their prisoners of war. And one of the ways was impaling them or putting them up on a pole. That's why Jonah was so afraid to go to Nineveh. The Romans didn't invent this form of execution. They simply perfected it. But what it is referring to here, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It is someone who has been accused, they are guilty, and they have been sentenced to death by hanging them on a tree. Later on, the Romans wanted something a little bit more portable. They invented the cross. They used it as a method of execution. Paul is saying here that Jesus Christ went to the tree. He went to the old rugged cross as a curse so that the Gentiles and everyone who would receive him by faith could receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That, my friend, is the cure to the curse of the law. So the symbolism of the tree is very, very symbolic when he mentions this as well, when it was written in Deuteronomy, when he mentions it here. You see, salvation history begins and ends with the tree. As we mentioned this morning, Adam, the first Adam, was in the Garden of Eden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. The tree begins the curse all the way back in the book of Genesis. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus Christ dying on the cross, a tree cures the curse that began back in the book of Genesis. And finishing up the Bible, Revelations chapter 22, verse two, it says that the leaves of a tree bring healing and the tree no longer is a curse, but it is a healing to all the nations. The symbolism of the tree, it could be either a 
beginning of a curse or the cure of the curse. It can bring healing. It can bring growth. It can stand for uh, fruit bearing. Psalm chapter one uses the analogy. It uses the symbolism of a tree. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But he shall be like a tree that is planted by the river of many waters, which brings forth its fruit in season, and its leaf withers not. But the ungodly are not so. They are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, and the ways of the ungodly shall perish. And Jesus hung on a tree in order for us to receive the promise by faith, not righteousness from the law. As I mentioned in uh, back up in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. If we could get to heaven any other way, then Jesus would not have to have died on the cross. You see, if you could be perfect, if you could get to heaven by being perfect, then it would be through human righteousness. But God calls for divine righteousness as the cure to the curse. And that divine righteousness comes only through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And next we see the covenant as we pick up in Galatians 3, verse 15. A covenant, a promise, an agreement between two people, a bond that they form together. When two people get married, they enter into a covenant. And this covenant that the Apostle Paul speaks of here, using legal terms once again, is this covenant between God and Abraham back in the book of Genesis. Again, in verse 15, he says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say into seeds as of many, but as of one. And if your Bible is like mine, when he first mentions the seed, it's in a capital S. It begins with a capital letter, which represents deity, which stands for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to explain that later on in the verse. And he says, and to your seed, who is Christ? The covenant, the bond between two people, the promise that God gave to Abraham. He continues the train of thought that began in verse 14 about the blessing for the Gentiles through Abraham that comes only through faith. Only a man's covenant is what he actually mentions here. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant. So the language here is in reference to a contract or a formal agreement between two people. The point being this, and we see this when he mentions seed versus seed with a small s, that the agreement or contract was binding and not changed except by the party who 
made it. No one else could come in and change this covenant or this promise or this contract. The only ones that could change it were the two that originally made it. Another reference to Old Testament scripture here. Paul is linking the Old Testament promise to Abraham to the New Testament fulfillment through the Lord Jesus Christ. This time he goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 and 22, 18, where the Lord says, And you, Abraham, shall all the families of the earth. You remember the meaning of the word all. All means all, and that's all it means. He says, all the families of the earth, Jew and Gentile is the point that Paul's trying to make here. Shall all the families of the earth, all nations shall be blessed by you because you obeyed. Is specifically what the Lord told Abraham. When he mentions the reference to seed versus seed, capital S and little s, he is referring to Genesis 13, 15 and 17 verses 7 through 8 when the covenant was not just with Abraham but with his offspring as well. And so in Paul's mind, here's what it meant. It meant that the covenant with Abraham was not over and done with. It wasn't just simply for Abraham's day. It was all the way through, even up to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was also intended to continue into the life of Jesus Christ and the people that he would redeem as well. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament covenant with Abraham, Paul is now linking to a promise to be received only by faith and not by works of the law. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Signed, sealed, and delivered. And in essence, what the Apostle Paul is saying, that's what these Judaizers are doing. They're coming in there trying to add to this initial covenant made between God and Abraham. And he said, they can't do it. He said, that promise is yours for the taking, and that promise can only be attained by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Next we see the commitment that is made. Verses 17 and 18. He said, In this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, It is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Remember that the purpose of the law was to reveal sin. It had no power to redeem sinners. So he's saying there's a commitment here that is made between Abraham and God, a covenant, a promise. And what does this reference to 430 years mean? The Judaizers that Paul is dealing with here in Galatia would have said that the law of Moses took priority over God's dealing with Abraham. But Paul emphasized that the law did not come along until long after Abraham and that covenant that Abraham made with the Lord. From the time that Abraham made the covenant with the Lord 
or the Lord made the covenant with Abraham, it was an entire 430 years till Moses instituted the law. And then from the law to Jesus Christ was another 1,500 years. So nevertheless, from Abraham until the law was 430 years. It is best explained in verse 18 where he says, For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. Paul is saying there is no way that anything or anyone can trump the promise that was made between Abraham and the Lord. He said that was it. It was signed. It was sealed. It was delivered. Abraham received the promise because he obeyed and now his um, lineage, his seed will receive it as well because Abraham obeyed. The first part of verse 18 simply says this, that the law renders the promise void. He says if you're living under the law, then that promise is null and void. It's of no effect anymore. He says if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer promise. He says, but however, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. The second half of verse 18 is where we really see him uh, put this in concrete. He says, the promise renders the law void. See, folks, we're not saved by provision. We're saved by a promise. We're saved by a promise that God says, if you believe and if you receive, then you will inherit eternal life. God's promises are secure. God's promises are firm. Second Corinthians chapter one, verse 20, if you want to write it down. Second Corinthians 1.20 says, for all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine says that God is not slack in his promises, but he's long suffering towards us. God never breaks a promise. And God never makes a promise that he can't keep and won't keep. First John chapter two, verse 25 says, and this is the promise that he has promised us eternal life. And that life and promise is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Corey Timboom had this to say about God's promises. She said, and I quote, gather the riches of God's promises. Nobody can take away from you those texts from the Bible, which you have learned by heart. What are the promises that you're holding on to today? Are you holding on to your own ability to be good or to do good or to adhere to some certain creed? Or are you holding on to a promise of God that he has given you eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ? D.L. Moody had this to say. He said, God never made a promise that was too good to be true. Boy, I like that. And that's what the apostle Paul is saying here. 
He's saying, think about the commitment that God has made to you. Not only did he promise it 2,000 years before Jesus came, but when Jesus came, he fulfilled each and every one of those Old Testament promises. And while the law could not take away your sin, it only revealed your sin. God sent someone, his one and only son, to actually remove your sin, to redeem you, to purchase you through his blood. Now, what is the commitment that we have to keep up? What is the part that we have to fulfill? As I begin to think about that, what is the commitment on our part? How do we go out and fulfill this promise? How do we keep the promise that God made to Abraham alive, that he was going to make him a nation, a kingdom, so large that it can't even be counted? Just doing what Jesus said in the Great Commission. Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. You bring in as many as you can to God's kingdom. You tell them that they can be saved by faith, that God's grace just abounds to everyone who will believe and receive him. Back up in verse 14, he says that the promise of the spirit through faith we might receive. As many as possible, we go out and get them. That's how we fulfill the promise. That's how we keep that promise going. That's how we uphold our end of the commitment. We take it to all the ends of the earth. We take it all throughout Morgan City. We tell people that there is hope, there is a future, there is grace, there is mercy. And God wants to redeem you the same way that he redeemed me. Our commitment to stay true to the gospel, to reach as many as possible. And I still think about that statistic that's in this pamphlet that they gave us. 4.6 billion people are considered unreached. Day eight of this prayer guide has this to say, that we will reach the lost through commitment. Have you made a commitment to do that? Have you made a commitment to be as active as possible? And I think that's what the apostle Paul is trying to do here to this church at Galatia. He's saying, God is not finished with you yet. If you will stand firm in your faith and your belief, if you will not be persuaded by these false teachers, if you will be actively engaged in great commission work, planting churches, sharing your faith, telling others about Jesus, day eight says that we will reach the lost through commitment. And it comes along with this prayer. It says, Lord, we praise you for the long-term commitment of missionaries around the world. When disasters strike the nations, our missionaries respond with love and compassion because you have already given them a love for these people. For your glory, we are committed to love people in times of plenty and in times of great need. And it says, we recognize that people's greatest need is the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem all of lost mankind 
And that through our missionaries, we are delivering the gospel to the lost. This is our commitment. Keep us steadfast. Are you living under the promise? Or are you living under the curse? Are you trying to do it on your own? Or are you resting in the work that the Lord Jesus Christ has already accomplished for you? Matthew Henry had this to say in his commentary on the whole Bible. He says, the law sets before us our wretched state by sin. Remember, the law doesn't redeem us from our sin. It only reveals our sin. And then he goes on to say, but there it leaves us. It discovers our disease, but does not make known the cure. That's where Jesus steps in. He is the cure for our disease. Just like we talked about this morning, through that first Adam, all of mankind has been infected with the disease of sin. We've fallen short. We've missed the mark. But the promise of God is this, that if we come to him by faith, nothing in my hands I bring, (laughs) simply to the cross I cling. And then God says, that's what I'm looking for right there. Is an obedient heart that will trust in me, that will promise to follow me and love me all the days of their life. That's the heart that I can and will do something with. What promise are you holding on to right now? Where is the Lord leading you? That song we sang just a few moments ago, Have Faith in God. Verse two said this, it says, wait on the Lord, trust his word and be patient. Have faith in God, he'll answer yet. Every head bowed and every eye closed. My friends, don't don't listen to the voices of this world. As much as possible, block them out. That's what the Apostle Paul was urging this church at Galatia to do. All those voices of the world... They're trying to lead you in so many different directions. There's one voice we want to hear. We want to hear that still, small voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, softly and tenderly calling us to come to him and to trust in him, to fully rely on the work that he accomplished on the cross of Calvary, that old rugged cross, that wretched tree, in which he became a curse for us to cure us of the curse that we were under. But all the voices in the world were saying that Jesus is not real. God is dead. The Bible doesn't apply to us these days. Church is full of hypocrites. You name it, those voices are saying so many different things. Don't listen to those voices. Instead, learn how to tune in to what God is saying through his word. Spend time meditating on those promises. My promise is Psalm 34, 8. 
Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And blessed is the man or person, boy or girl, man or woman, who trusts in him. Folks, right now, that's the story of my life, is trusting in him one step at a time. It don't add up. It don't make sense. But that's what the Lord told me to do. What is he asking you to do right now? I'm going to ask Nancy to come play just a couple of verses of a closing hymn. I want to give you some time to respond. What is God calling you to do right now? What promise are you holding to? And what is it right now that might be making your faith waver just a little bit? In just a moment when the music begins, whatever you're struggling with, bring it down to these altars and give it to the Lord. And say, God, I don't know what the next step is. I've got voices in my head that are pulling me in different directions. But Lord, I want to clearly hear you and the instructions that you have for my life. Heavenly Father, we just come before you now. We thank you so much for the promises in your word. I know, Lord God, that uh, there may be someone here tonight that's looking for answers. There may be someone right now who's weak in their faith, Lord God. There may be someone right now that really doesn't know what step they need to take. So I pray that you'll speak to their hearts in this moment, Lord God, in this, in this quiet time, in this time, Lord God, where we could reflect on what we've heard. And I just pray, Lord God, that you would touch their heart, that your Holy Spirit would come along beside them, put his arms around them, and let them know that you are with them, just as you promised, Lord God. And we commit this time to you, Lord God, and pray that you do with it what only you can do. And we just ask it in Jesus' name, amen. The preceding message was presented by First Baptist Church in Morgan City, Louisiana. For more information about a relationship with Jesus Christ or about First Baptist Church, including contact info, go to the website www.fbcmc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God bless you.